Well, brothers and sisters, we come now to the sixth chapter of John's Apocalypse, where the Apostle John is given a vision of the Lamb now breaking the seven seals from the book that he has taken from the hand, the right hand of the Father. In the fifth chapter, John was given a vision of glory and grandeur of the one enthroned in heaven and of the victorious Lamb, who ironically gains victory through sacrifice. Last week, we considered the worthiness of Christ, the worthiness of the Lamb standing as if slain, and to whom belongs all power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. By his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, Christ has inaugurated his kingdom, to which there is no end. All citizens of heaven sing together at the end of the fifth chapter. To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It is the glorious scene from heaven. And now, in this sixth chapter... The Lord draws John's attention to the apparent chaos that is taking place on earth as the Lamb breaks the seals from the books, from the book that He has taken from the hand of the one enthroned. The Lamb begins to break the seals of the, of the book and one by one, each seal is unloosing or un- unleashing, uh, being loosed in an indiscriminate manner, suffering on the earth. The breaking of the seals is an unleashing of suffering. The command for each of the four destructive horses to come, I hope that you notice the command for them to come comes from the one who is enthroned. Uh, let me say that maybe more clearer. The seals are unleashing suffering. And the permission to unleash suffering is coming from the one who is enthroned. That may be surprising to some of you, but it shouldn't be. As we discussed over the past two weeks, the breaking of the seals, it it begins the revealing and the carrying out or the executing of the contents of the scroll. There is a scroll in the right hand of the one enthroned. Christ, the Lamb of God, has come because He has authority to come. And He has taken the scroll from the right hand of the one enthroned. Christ, by His authority, is now unleashing all that is is contained within the scroll. And what is contained within the scroll is the, 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 the plans and purposes of God, which includes suffering that is unleashed upon the entire world. They are the plans of God, the purposes of God, that are both, listen to this, they are both redemptive and judicial. The plans and purposes of God are both redemptive and they are judicial on the earth. As the Son of God, the victorious Lamb, breaks the seals, John sees what many have under misunderstood, I think, as being sequential sufferings or sequential disasters, meaning 
some people have misunderstood these breaking of seals as being, first this happens. And then the next seal opens, and then now this happens. So on and so forth. It's, it's not sequential, it's simultaneous. Now we are seeing it as being sequential. Uh, seal one is broken, seal two, and so on. But really, it's all of them taking place at the same time. It, it's not sequential, it's a simultaneous devastation. It's a simultaneous, listen to this, redemption and justice. All happening at the same time. It's being leashed all at the same time, taking place all at the same time, and will eventually lead to an ultimate end of all things. Now, there's a great question that plagues all of humanity, all of our minds. It even plagues unbelievers. And I think that as we talk about what that question is, you'll, you'll see, oh, yes, I, I know unbelievers also are concerned about that, too. And it's this. It's the notion of the end, but the question of when. It's the notion of the end, but the question of when is the end. I say unbelievers because even even the unbeliever will read Mayan calendars. Even the unbeliever will try to uh, read the stars to see uh, whether or not the end is near. In his commentary on Revelation, Dennis Johnson, I think, does an excellent job in bringing this point out. He says, the experience of Jesus' disciples shows us that when, uh, when we get into the Bible's teaching about things to come, it's easier to ask the wrong question rather than the right question. We want to ask when. That's the wrong question. Because Jesus is more concerned with answering this. Why and what for? We want to know when. Jesus is more concerned with answering the question, why and what for? You will remember in Matthew 24, as the disciples are marveling at the beauty of the temples there, the Lord prophesies of a time when there would be no stone left upon another, that, that, that the, the beauty of the buildings would eventually come crashing down. And if you can imagine his disciples hearing this and, and being perplexed, uh, these, these have stood for all of these centuries and you're saying they're going to all come tumbling down. You and I would, would, would sympathize with the disciples because they, they were thinking the same thing that you and I would be thinking. Maybe then and possibly even now. What do you think their big question was? When? When is this going to happen? It, it eats away at them. So they, they eventually say to the Lord, it's killing us. you got to tell us when this is going to happen. So the Lord says in Matthew 24, 3, uh, they, say, they say, actually, uh, the disciples, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They want to know when's all this going to stop? When's all this going to happen? But notice that the Lord does not tell them when. The Lord Jesus does not give his disciples a date or a time. As a side note, someone might be thinking in their mind, yeah, it, well, it's because the Son of God doesn't know. Even the Son doesn't know. <clears throat> I mean, uh, brothers and sisters, does Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Eternal One, does He know when the end will be? Absolutely, He knows when the end will be. Well, then why does He say that He doesn't know? In one sense, 
He doesn't know. And we'll get to that sense, but not in the sense that the Son, who is equal with the Father and the Spirit, somehow does not have the right or the authority to know when the end is going to be. Uh, we spoke about this last week, didn't we? The Father is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows the beginning and the end because he has decreed all things from the beginning to the end. Uh, you'll remember last week we also noted that we do not exalt one person of the Trinity above another. Nor do we ascribe more authority, more knowledge, more wisdom, more power to one person of the Trinity over another. The Father knows all. Amen. The Son knows all. Amen. Equally and eternally knows all things. The Spirit knows all. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have in a united way decreed all things. Therefore, the Son does know the day and the hour. The Son does know the time. And the place, because he is God and he has decreed that day. But in his incarnation, listen to this, to give the day, to give the hour, and to give the time was not a part of his incarnated work. His work was to live, die, and rise for our justification, not tell us specific times and dates. That's not a part of his work. So then, rather than giving a day or time, or rather than answering the question of when, the Lord speaks of a variety of birthing pains. He says, I won't tell you when, but I'll tell you signs of the end. Here they are. Wars, <clears throat> rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, famines, earthquakes, all of these things will arise. But listen to this. But our Lord says, but when these things happen, don't be frightened. Do not be anxious. Our Lord calms our anxieties and says in verse 6, See that none of you are frightened, Matthew 24, uh, verse 6. See that none of you are frightened for these things. They must take place. But that is not yet the end. He says in verse 8, All of these things are, listen to how he says it, They're merely the beginning of birth pains. It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning that is leading to the end. Oh, so then the question of when remains on the lips of the, um, the, of, of the disciples and also probably on ours. It may have been on the lips of the seven churches in Asia Minor. I'm seeing these birthing pains. Uh, we've heard about these, these things to look forward to when Christ is about to arise. Is this the end? When will our tribulation and suffering end? Chapter 4 and 5, they were given a glimpse into maybe something that they had wondered about. What's heaven going to be like? But, but they're given a glimpse of heaven as a source of comfort, of hope, endure. And they may have wondered again, well, when? When do I go there? Is, is all of the things that are happening now and what you are showing me a, pre, a prelude to what's right around the corner. It's, is it happening now? When will these things be? And here's another question. If the Lamb has conquered, why does evil endure? Rather than answering the questions of when our Lord will 
reflect or cause our minds to redirect to know why. Why are all of these things taking place? Why, why are all of these devastations taking place? And what should we do in the midst of, of suffering? What should we do in the midst of tribulation? Christ is going to answer the question of why and what. The rule and reign of Christ is, let me say, as we prepare to get into our first point, it's not in some distant future. The rule and reign of Christ, his kingdom was inaugurated at the victorious Christ or victorious cross of Christ. When Christ was victorious on the cross, the kingdom of Christ inaugurated. And I would even say before, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he would say. He is here. The kingdom is now. His reign extends over every difficulty, over every tribulation that the church has experienced from now, from then, now and beyond. So with God's help, let us consider the four seals that have been unleashed and God's purpose through it all. Number one, the first seal. This is Genesis, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1 through 2. The four writers here in the sixth chapter of Genesis, they find their Old Testament reference. If you're wondering, is this something new? No, it's something old. And we find their reference from Zechariah 6 and Ezekiel chapter 14. Go home and, and read those chapters later. Ezekiel 14, Zechariah 6. The number four, we haven't talked about this yet, but the number four is often most representative of the four corners of the world. Whenever you see these fours in the scripture, in Revelation, it's most often pointing to the four corners of the world or the world itself. Uh, when we see the number uh, for it, it is usually encompassing the whole world. In Zechariah, the four groups of horses with their colors that are almost identical to those of Revelation, they are commissioned by God. And in Zechariah, they're commissioned by God to patrol the earth. To punish those nations that are oppressing God's people. As the victorious lamb breaks or unleashes the first seven seals, we see that the first four, they, they really do belong together, which is why we're, we're putting them in a sermon together. They are a part of this series of fours that we shall see. There will be four trumpets. There will be four bowls. In chapters four and five, we saw four living creatures. And now... As the seal is broken, John hears a voice of thunder coming from the living creatures who summons the rider to come forth. The command is from the one enthroned where there are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. The decree is carried out by the cherubim. The, the, the one enthroned calls the cherubim to call forth the rider. And the rider comes. Symbolically, John draws near. And he's allowed to see what, what comes forth from the breaking of the first seal. And look at verse 2, if you would. <clears throat> I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering. And to conquer. Now, at first glance, many have mistakenly, I believe viewed this first rider as being Christ himself. In fact, many scholars identify this first rider because, as Christ because in chapter 19, 
the Lord Jesus Christ is also riding a white horse. And he is executing dominion over the earth. I do say mistakenly, and I do believe there's a problem with this view, because in chapter 6, the rider has a bow. But in chapter 19, the rider has a sword. In chapter 6, the rider has a crown. But in chapter 19, the rider has many diadems on his head, which is many crowns. And those crowns are filled with jewels. The only feature that these two riders have in common is that they share a white horse or they both are riding a white horse. Someone might say, what about the fact of this this conquering, right? This first horse is said to be conquering, riding a white horse and conquering. Uh, they, they associate white with uh, leading an army or being the leader of an army. That's true, but but not necessarily equal to Christ or not necessarily being equal, therefore, to Christ. We might say, is not Christ the conquering lion? Yes, Christ is the conquering lion. But the word conquer does not exclusively belong to Jesus in the book of Revelation. That's important. Whenever we hear the word conquer, it's not always referring to Christ and his work. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13 and chapter 11, the word conquer or overcome is used when it's applied to the beast and to the Antichrist. So conquer doesn't always refer to or apply only to Christ. So when we are hearing or seeing this first rider who comes forth on on a white steed, what what are we seeing? The rider is an instrument of Christ. And he executes the judgment of Christ upon the unbelievers. Scholars note that this rider could be called very very simply conquest. Conquest. The first rider is not Christ. He's authorized by Christ. That's probably a better way to say it. Not Christ, authorized by Christ. After breaking the seal that is to be unleashed upon the earth, the writer does nothing that God does not call him to do. The writer goes forth, but he's not riding out of control. Does that make sense? As he's uh, riding to, to begin his conquest, He's being sent by God. He he is, if you will, leading the cavalry of violence. He's leading the cavalry of of famine and of death. They are all a part of the birthing pains that Christ spoke of to his disciples, but this first one is the one who leads the charge. Let me make this very clear. Make no mistake about this. This rider is not a holy angel. It is, in fact, a demonic force that is executing God's divine justice. Let that help you sleep at night. The function of this writer towards the unbeliever is to destroy and to deceive. That's the function of the writer. It's to destroy and to deceive the unbeliever. The writer and his white horse also gives off the appearance of righteousness. But it's meant to deceive. Because he is riding this this kind of white horse. Now someone may say, is this the Antichrist? No, not the Antichrist. It's just a, a force of deception and destruction. Through deception, they destroy. It's a false representation of Christ and his righteousness, but it's not Christ. 
Now, there will be attempts to deceive not just unbelievers, but also believers. But the attempts to destroy the church because the, the writer brings devastation and destruction, it will fail. The attempts to deceive the church, because that's what the writer does, that will also fail because the gates of hell will press against the church, but the gates of hell will never prevail. But the writer is is here. I'll make that clear throughout the sermon. But I need to make this clear, too. This is a part of God's decree. This is the will of God. The four horsemen that are unleashed from the book are unleashed from God's book. It's not the book of Satan. It's God's book. These four writers are part of the plans and purposes of God. Well, that should bring us comfort. But it also kind of should maybe cause a little perplexity, right? This is a repeated phrase in verses 1 through 8. Listen to the phrase. Given to him. As each seal is broken, the one who breaks forth and brings forth devastation, the scriptures say it's given to him. It's given to him. It's, it's an authorizing of the person who is the writer, who's bringing destruction. It's, it's, they've been authorized to do so. The ones who are authorized, they are passive receivers. That's important. That they are passive receivers of what's given to them, and God is the active distributor of what, of that which is given. Dear saints, this includes good and evil. God, the boundlessly good one, God, the one who is without borders kind, decrees and permits these riders of devastation to go forward? Yes. Yes, he does. That may cause some of us to... to to be uncomfortable, to wiggle in our seats, to maybe scratch our heads and, and ask the age-old question, well then, are you saying that God is the author of evil, the, the originator of evil? Since, I'm not going to say the word if, but since, not if, since it is in the eternal decree of God that such devastation be unleashed upon the earth, and since we believe that these are actually demonic forces, is, is God not the, the originator and author of it all? No. Oh, I feel so much better now. Let, let's, let's, let's consider what we confess. Second uh, LBC, 3.1, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author nor hath fe- the author of sin, nor hath any fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, yet is the liberty of, or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established in what which appears his wisdom, in which appears his wisdom, in disposing all things, the power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Now, that was a lot, but you have those confessions, you know what they say. I would not suggest to you this. I would not suggest to you that when we say, when we ask the question, is God the author of evil? And we say, no. Look at what we confess. That you would simply go, oh, okay, I feel much better about myself and about God and everything else. 
I, I would not suggest that that would be a good way to respond, nor do I think it's a, nor do I think that it is a, a thoughtful way to respond. It's good to confess that God is not the author of evil because he, because he is not. But it is also, dear saint, it is good to wrestle with the intricacies and the complexities of why and how God is not the author of evil. And dear ones, it's good to have tension, isn't it? It's good to have mystery. We, unfortunately, we are a people that, that we like to have definitive explanations. But we like to have clear answers. Tell me clearly, and that's the answer. But we're talking about the infinite one. And we are finite creatures. And here we are, finite creatures, trying to make definitive statements about the infinite one. Do you see the problem there? We're trying to, to pin down the infinite one with very simple, as a matter of fact, statements. Now, we can say no and we can say, here's what we confess, but is it that simple? It's not. With our limited knowledge, with our limited language, with our limited understanding, we are trying to make definitive statements, meaning say nothing more. And that's not helpful because we're constantly growing. Or at least we should be. Things that you believe last year, hopefully you've improved upon. Things and ways that you talked about God last year, hopefully you've said, that's actually not right. This is probably a better way to speak about God. Okay. We're constantly being humbled, aren't we? Yeah. We're constantly coming to a point where we have to confess to our shame, but it should be to the glory of God that we don't know him as well as we think we do. Right. That we don't have him figured out. As if we could ever figure him out. He is the one who is simple, and yet he is far, far more vast than our minds could ever encircle. As we learn, we will become better, but I think, as one theologian says, we'll come to know better. But we will often, more often than not, walk away feeling like we know him less. At least less than we thought we did. That's good. This same theologian also says, he'll be here in a couple of weeks, also says that, and that's the glory of heaven, that we will, we will be eternally enjoying our growth and understanding and, and adoration of him for all of eternity. It will never stop. You're not going to get to heaven and say, it all makes sense now. Now I understand you completely. <laughs> we will be constantly in a state of awe of our God. Now, what might we say is God communicating then about his purposes in the use of these writers and their devastation that they bring? What's he using them for? What's the purpose? Zechariah 6 gives us, uh, Zechariah is given the vision of the same writers where the Lord commissions them to go forth to execute divine judgment on sinful unbelievers. And at the same time, they are used to refine the faith of the believer. Their purpose and function is the same here in Revelation. In Zechariah, execute judgment on unbeliever. In Zechariah, also refine the faith of the believer. Here in Revelation, execute judgment on the unbeliever and refine the faith of the believer. It's the purpose. They go forth from the throne of the Lamb. The Lamb is not explaining when, but explaining why. Execute judgment on the earth. 
and listen, as judgment is being executed, the church is experiencing tribulation. And we, through that tribulation, are being purified. Brother Ray, would you mind turning on the AC, please? Are you guys hot? I'm the only one hot? Okay. God is infinitely just. God is infinitely kind. Air, AC. And in the unleashing of the writers, we are getting something of the sense of the perfection of God. What should we do as we are given this insight? And what we should we expect until Christ returns? Well, what does Christ encourage the seven churches of Asia Minor to do? We've gone through a whole bunch of teachings. What does Christ encourage the church to do in the midst of their tribulation? Remember? Persevere. Endure. Be faithful until the end. Hold fast to Christ. What should we do as we are experiencing trouble and suffering in the world? Persevere. Endure. Be faithful even unto death. Hold fast to Christ. Here comes the first writer. And he leads the charge of God's ordained justice and refining fire. What does he bring? Number two, second seal. Uh, Revelation 6, uh, 3 and 4. The description of the first writer is really kind of a summary of the writers that follow. The first writer introduces devastation in general. The other writers bring the specifics of the devastation. They're revealed. The second writer is summoned. And again, these are not sequential. They are meant to be uh, simultaneous and he brings, or he is, looks like that of blood, red blood. And he's given a great sword. And what does he do? He takes peace from the earth, producing great violence with the sword. The writer brings suffering, violence. And the violence and suffering is indiscriminate, uh, meaning... No one is is spared from the violence. All humanity will be touched by violence, even the church. Uh, Maybe I should say this way. All humanity have been and will be until Christ returns. Because the the more, as I'm teaching, the more I'm saying will be, I think I'm conditioning you to think of something to come rather than something that is and has been. Does that make sense? The writer has brought, has been bringing, and will continue to bring until Christ returns, suffering on the earth. That's a better way to say it. The church is not kept from this suffering, are we? Have we been? Not at all. This is general suffering. Men throughout all ages, but especially from the the resurrection of Christ, have experienced wars, famine, destruction, And they will do so, they'll experience these things, even if they're not trusting in Christ. And even those who are trusting in Christ will experience these things. The rain will fall on the just and the unjust. And in the midst of suffering, the church will often suffer greater because we are unwilling to compromise with the false gods of this world. 
the seven churches of Asia Minor, they experienced this, didn't they? Uh, they are representative of the church for all times until Christ returns. And, and they were not kept from suffering, were they? Uh, they were experiencing suffering. And Christ encourages her to hold fast in the midst of tribulation. So it is with the church for all time. Satan intensifies his sufferings upon the church. And the purpose is that so that we might be tempted to abandon our faith. This is what the churches of, of, of Pergamum were experiencing, weren't they? The suffering and violence came to the church of Pergamum for the name of Christ, and yet they held fast even though they saw their brother and our brother Antipas killed. And, and more, more, more than likely, Antipas was killed by the sword. Which is why when Christ introduces himself to the church of Pergamum, he says, I am he who holds the two-edged sword. And now here comes the rider, the second rider, and what is he holding in his hand? He's holding a sword, but Christ's sword is greater and sharper than the, the sword of this rider. This rider brings destruction. He brings devastation. He brings strife among men. And the church is not excluded from this suffering. Remember what the Lord declared in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. I did not come to bring peace. Don't think I've come to bring peace, he said. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. The seven churches and the church for all time. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of being attacked by the sword. And you can walk through the annals of history of the church to see how often we have been attacked by the sword. To know that we are in the midst of this, this rider wreaking havoc on the world. Christ encourages the church, you, and maybe those, should the Lord tarry, who will hear this sermon in years to come, to hold fast to the name of Christ, even unto death. Because it's God's will. This rider has come forth. Not from Satan. Satan doesn't say, I'm going to direct all of these writers of where they want, where they're going to go. God directs them. So since this is God's will, I will endure suffering. Holding fast to Christ may result in the death of our bodies. It has for many who have gone before us. But we must not fear the one who can kill the body. But we must fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Hold fast to Christ in spite of suffering. Amen. Number three, the third seal. Revelation 6, this is verses 5 through 6. The third rider is sent and he carries balancing scales. Those of us who are old enough to remember those floating scales in the grocery stores that you used to see. The rider here is permitted to unleash another aspect of suffering and it's famine. Famine. Again, in Matthew chapter 24, our Lord describes famine as being a part of the birthing pains. That signs that are inevitably pointing to the end, but are not the end. Pointing to the end, but not the end. The scales that the rider holds, they are a metaphor. And they're meant to symbolize that, that food will be distributed, but it will be distributed in limited amounts. It's a callback to... Uh, the times when Joseph was in Egypt and he was weighing out the scales for the famine that, that the, the land was experiencing. These scales, they represent uh, food being care, carefully weighed because food is limited. 
of the writer, he brings famine. The commissioning of the writer, again, comes from Christ, who breaks the seals, who unleashes Christ, famine on the earth. And there's specifics. <clears throat> Not from the living creatures, but from the one who is in the midst of the throne. It's the command from God. And here's what he says. A quart of wheat for denarius. Three quarts of barley for denarius. Three quarts of barley for denarius. Do not damage the oil and the wine. I'm going to get specific for a second. Denarius was a day's wage. Now, pay attention closely. A quart of wheat was just about enough for one person to survive off of for one day. One day's wage will buy you one day's worth of food. Three quarts of barley was enough for one person to eat for three days. But those who had a family, maybe like most of us with children, three quarts of barley would only be enough for one day. My children are growing, and I cannot believe how much those little angels from heaven eat. I wonder, though, if you see the theme. The theme is this, survival for today. The theme is this, survival for today. Some of us, not many of us, but some of us know the, the challenge of finding enough food just for today. Especially here in America, we don't really know what that is. Uh, here in America, we buy food for the week, don't we? Some of us have two refrigerators. In my occupation, I will go into homes where there are three refrigerators. Literally, one for the everyday food, one for the frozen food, and one for the refreshments. For them, there is abundance. Here is the third rider. And he is permitted to unleash famine on the world to a degree that food will be only available to be purchased in limited amounts. It will be... Uh, in a limited way distributed, weighed out in scales, but given in small portions. A day's wage will buy you enough food for the day, but not for abundance. Uh, there will be no Costco, I think, at that time. Oh, in, in those moments. See what I just did? I pointed to something ahead, but it's now. There will be, in those times, Costco's will not be available. And listen, I'll talk about it in a moment. There will only be just enough for today. Oil and wine will be available, but they will be out of reach. This is prophesied in Joel chapter 1 and verse 10, where the prophet sees the time when wheat, barley, and oil will not be affordable because famine will be so severe. They are available, but not affordable because the demand is so high. So the do not damage the oil and the wine has been paraphrased by one theologian as cheat the oil overcharge for the oil. Uh, you know what happens when there are commodities that we all want in times where they're, they are not mostly available. What happens to the commodities? They go up in price. Uh, you, you know the times where you're, $2 for a lemon, is there a lemon shortage around? And yes, there is. That's why they're $2, right? I don't know if there's a lemon shortage, but I've just said about times in the past. Famine brings out the worst in humanity. When there is lack... Famine brings out the worst in humanity. Rather than humanity taking care of one another, humanity tries to cheat one another and take advantage of one another. Hasn't that been happening? 
Doesn't that always happen? As humans made in the image of God, we are struggling for survival and men will cheat and manipulate one another for selfish gain. Men have continued to cheat and manipulate one another for selfish gain. Not will sometime in the future. Although it may get more intensified, although it may become greater, it has been that way since the resurrection of Christ and even before. Men have always cheated one another. Famine brings economic persecution. And even though this touches all lives, Christians will be the first ones affected because they refuse to compromise. Now, doesn't this sound familiar? Revelation 2.8, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, the Lord Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. Remember that? These are not disconnected from what we've just talked about. As Christ is talking about these different writers that are coming forth, he's, he's describing the exact situation that the churches in Asia Minor are going through. I know your poverty. Why, well, why were they poor? They were poor because they were unwilling to compromise. And what was the result of their poverty? They were unwilling to get food. They were unable to get food. They were unable to survive just for the day. Christ is saying, this is a part of the writers who have gone forth. This is a part of the destruction, the devastation that comes upon all the world, but especially the church. They were excluded from society. They would not worship pagan gods. They would not offer uh, pinches of incense to Caesar. They would not deny Christ. Therefore, they were denied work. And they found it difficult to provide for even the most basic of needs. They were surviving off a denarius a day. Just enough for one barley of wheat. And notice, brothers and sisters, that through this devastation, the church is still here. Let me say it this way. Through this tribulation, the church has not yet been raptured. For those who say the church won't be here. Well, Christ is describing exactly what the church is going through and will continue to go through until Christ returns. We're not, we're not excluded from the suffering. We're, we're in the thick of it. And actually, we're the ones who are first affected by it. The church is not spared from tribulation. Rather, the church is preserved in the midst of tribulation. We are kept. Now, this might again rise, raise the question of when. And since this has an immediate application to those seven churches, are we talking about something from the past or the present or the future? The question or the answer to that question is yes. Wait, past? Yes. Present? Yes. Future? Should Christ tarry? Yes. When Christ arose, his opposition intensified. Satan was unleashed, as we'll see later. That time when, when Satan is unleashed, right? That, that thousand years were all like, when is that? It's now. It's been happening since Christ rose. Satan has been unleashed. It's metaphorical, meaning a long period of time. It's now. Satan has always opposed the plans and purposes of God. But at the establishing of the kingdom of Christ, the promises that the gates of hell that try to push the kingdom back will, will not avail. They will not succeed. The churches were experiencing these woes that were, that were permitted by God. And... 
do you know that we're talking about these violences, these wars, and these these famines? Do you know that that this has happened throughout time? I, I did a, a, a simple. You can shut the AC off, now, brother. I did a simple Google search in preparation for this sermon. Just to, I thought there, there probably was maybe a couple of famines throughout world history, right? With barring th- this time period, Google is able to. To start at the year 370 to the present. And I started to look at the pattern. Every 10 years, there's a famine somewhere. In some of the the, uh, next famines, the time frames are shorter. There has been a famine every 10 years somewhere in the world since Christ has returned, since Christ has arose. There were famines before that. But Google was recording these things as constant famines. Uh, should we, should we go into the wars? I was watching some, uh, I was watching, uh, uh, the History Channel the other day on toys. And how toys at a certain point were, were not made with metal because all of the metal was being provided for the war. I looked at my son while we were watching the show. Can you imagine a time you living in where all the toys that you had were being donated to the army so that the army could make more weapons? Some of you are old enough to remember that time. To remember a time when, when war was on your, your soil. Some of us were, are, are young enough to remember a time, old enough to remember a time, when 9-11 happened and when everyone wasn't listening to go to Iraq. Brothers and sisters, in our lifetime there have been at least eight wars that at least we have been involved in. Just us. Can you imagine all of the wars that, and all of these are what? They're just birthing pain. Christ calls them merely birthing pains, not the end. All of these things, Christ says, must take place. They are judgment and they are redemption, a refining of our faith. There could be a time when famine is more, rather than isolated, more widespread. There could be a time when when war that is more isolated could be more widespread. It could be. But what do we do in the meantime, and what would we do if that happens? Here's what we do. We look to Christ. Christ who commanded his church to pray, give us today our daily bread. Not tomorrow or the week before, or I should say after, but today. We look to Christ, who is the bread of life, and out of whom flows rivers of living water. We look to Christ, who reminds us that we are not to worry about our bodies, what we will eat or what we will drink, because life is more than food and drink. We look to Christ, who in Revelation 7 and 16 has promised to take our hunger and our thirst away forever. Which is him saying, don't worry about your body. There will be a time when you will no longer hunger and you will no longer thirst. Look to that time. Dear ones, we hold fast to Christ and we do not deny his name. We remain faithful even unto death. Our security, which we so desperately and naturally desire. It's natural for us to to desire security. It's natural for us to, to want safety. But sometimes we idolize security. 
sometimes we idolize safety. We look at the future and go, if I don't have these things, then, then I have no peace. If, if I can't look ahead and see that I'm going to be secure, that everything is going to be okay in an earthly sense, uh, we, 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 we have anxiety and we don't know how to function. Don't make an idol out of security. Uh, let me also say, this is one of the reasons why the earth will be destroyed, because people view the earth as an idol. The earth is now people, people's idol. Save the earth. Protect the earth. Everything is done for the security of the earth. The Lord will burn up the earth in fire, as he does with all idols in all of scripture. They are burned. Two on that later on today. Our security is not in this world or this earth. Our security is in Christ. And this plan comes from our triune God. So we rest in his purposes. Fourth and finally, the fourth seal. Revelation 6 verses 7 through 8. The fourth seal is broken and its rider is revealed as having a pale green appearance. Uh, Some may remember when you were young watching cartoons and when a character was sick, uh, the artist would often depict them as being green when they were nauseous. They were, they were green and they would depict, be depicted as some kind of, some kind of green, right? The, well, they're not far off. The color of sickness from the ancients is the color of pale green. Here, the pale green rider <clears throat> is called forth from one of the living creatures and he brings illness, which leads to death. It's, it's pestilence, which leads to death. And the rider brings with him death and Hades. <clears throat> the realm of the dead follow after this rider. <clears throat> Christ reminds the church in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 that he has the keys of death and Hades. That he has authority over death and Hades. That death and Hades are the effects, though, of the first three riders. First rider, second rider, third rider, the effect of the first three is death and Hades. Or you might say the the one, two, and three equal number four, death and Hades. <clears throat> it is as though the vision is is uh, that is communicated it is is culminating in death. That's the the, the equality of it, the, the equalness of it. He brings pestilence again, conquest, the sword, famine. They all include, to some extent, death. Some theologians see all four of these as a result of just one thing, which is war. Some theologians will say, these four, first four riders, they are really the result of just war. War has brought all of these things about. It's possible. Either way, the result is the same. It's death. How does it come? It doesn't matter. Do you really care how death came when you die? It's, I died. It doesn't matter how I died. I died. But you will notice that there's a partial effect. It's not everyone in the whole world. Everyone in the whole world is not affected by these woes. The devastation is divinely limited to only a fourth of the earth. That is, only a fourth of the world's uh, uh, residents will be, are killed through these woes. The fourth rider, the four riders, they are not permitted to bring devastation without exception to every single person. There is a limit to their devastation, a divine limit. The devastation, though, is felt worldwide. 
even though not everyone is touched physically worldwide by the devastation. Everyone in, in, in some sense will feel the devastation of the loss or have felt our feeling. I need to make sure that I'm very careful about not placing these things only in the future, but they are all a part of what we've experienced. It's interesting that in chapters four and five, <clears throat> John is given the vision of four living creatures who surround the living throne, right? They worship him. Uh, they are present to praise him. Uh, they, they represent redeemed creation. They exist to carry out the holy purposes of God throughout the earth. And now in chapter six, what do we have? Rather than four living creatures who surround the throne in glory, we have four living creatures who are coming out of the throne in devastation. They will inflict devastation on the earth until Christ returns. Through Christ, his death and resurrection, he has made the evil forces of darkness. He's made them his agents to execute his plans of sanctification and judgment for the advancing and the consummating of his kingdom. Earlier, I mentioned that these calamities are ordered from the throne of God. They are from God, and he orders these riders to carry out the devastation in the world. Again, their plan is twofold. It's divine righteous judgment upon the wicked, and it is divine refining of our faith. For some, it may be, as we close, extremely difficult to accept that God is sovereign over evil. I would like you to consider... The alternative. What is the alternative? Consider that God is not sovereign over evil. Consider that no one is control in, in control over evil. That that evil rage rages in an uncontrolled manner. That evil is unguided. Consider that evil actually has. No purpose. It's just random. That's the alternative. If God is not sovereign over evil, then you and I are in great trouble. And Satan, he is a wild, roaring lion who you should be very afraid of. How terrible would that be? If it were true, praise be to God, it's not. Praise be to God that what I just espoused is absolutely false. That God is sovereign over evil. That it's not raging out of control. Uh, that it's not going wherever it wills, but that God sovereignly and divinely directs it for judgment and for the refining of our faith. Judgment comes. <clears throat> Devastation comes. But brothers and sisters, it comes because, because of sin. And who are the culprits of sin? We look at these devastations and go, wow, Rider 1, 2, and 3, and 4, gosh, that is such devastation. Well, why, why are they coming? What, what, what is initially the reason for them bringing devastation on the earth? It's because of sin. Who are the guilty parties of sin? You and I are the guilty parties of sin. Mm -hmm. 
you and I are the reasons why judgment comes. Well, God is just, yes, but God must execute his just judgment upon sin. And we are the culprits of that of that violation of his law. But praise be to God, he did not leave us in our guilty state. This morning, our brother Dustin read the law in its entirety. Then Pastor Isaiah read the great, uh, but God who was rich in mercy. While you were dead in your sin and trespass. It's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? That we have not been left in our sin. That God in his mercy and in his grace has sent for us, has come himself to redeem us, to save us from the judgment that you and I deserved. And though we experience tribulation, we will be comforted in this, that in Christ, these woes will not destroy us. They will, in fact, strengthen our faith and ready us for glory. If that's if that's the purpose of them, then bring them. If, if the purpose of the woes, at least for the believer, is to strengthen my faith and to ready me for glory. Then, Lord Jesus, let your will be done. Paul says in, uh, in the scriptures, though through many trials, tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Leon Morris said through Apocalyptic judgments, though apocalyptic judgments be loosed against all mankind, God's people need never be dismayed. They will be preserved no matter the tribulation. I'd like to end with the words of uh, our, our brother, the Apostle Paul, from Romans chapter 3 and 23, where the Apostle says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of grace or gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. He was to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And in demonstration, I should continue, I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. If your faith is in Christ, do not be dismayed. You will be preserved, come what may. And the promise is that you will join him and all the saints in heaven as we sing praise and glory to his name. Let us pray.